0: You are listening to the Post-Growth Australia Podcast. The one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back to another episode of PGAP. I'm your co-host Michael, sitting here with Mark Alan and we would like to first pay our respects to the Munang Noongar people whose land which we are currently recording this episode. I'd like to highlight the fact that the Munang Manang people lived on this land for tens of thousands of years at least and since European colonisation we're struggling to push 250 years. So. <laughs>
1: How's that context for you? Anyway, hello Mark, how are you? I'm good, I'm good Michael. And I would also point out that we've made quite a bad mess of things in that 250 years. Only thinking today that we, we need to create a society where we start trying to regenerate and reverse the damage that we've created to a lot of the land out here. And there are amazing people doing that, but we... We need to do that in partnership with the First Nations people as part of a reconciliation process.
0: And we're saying this now on the aftermath of the referendum vote. From my personal reflection, it was very unfortunate that Australians voted no majority for this referendum for First Nations Voice into Parliament. Thinking of the reasons why there's such a large no-vote turnout, one theory posited in Macro Business, which I read quite regularly, was that the no was a protest vote to the Anthony Albanese Labor government because it was seen as a possible distraction um, from day-to-day living and housing crisis for a majority of Australians. Now, I would just like to kind of provide a counter-argument to that. Um, It sounds to me like another false dichotomy. (laughs) And as we all know, I'm uh, not a major fan of false dichotomies. Surely, we can have a First Nations voice to Parliament recognized by the Constitution and address the myriad of living crises for a majority of australians also there are many ways to protest to the federal government Um, one is to not vote in a major party in the first place Um, and there are plenty of opportunities to voice your discontent for example there should have been demonstrations outside the jobs and skills summit Um, punching downwards onto First Nations Australians is, to me, a very poor and crass way to
1: um, make your protest vote heard. I agree. Yeah, I agree with your sentiments completely. It was a very sad and disappointing day. For me, though, I'm hoping that there will be a silver lining in the fact that I know that New South Wales is talking about now going for a treaty anyway so the silver lining may be that it may kick start better outcomes in the medium to long term but we can't we can't be sure of that but the tragedy is is that um, the vast majority of people who voted no didn't vote no because they they want us to go straight to a treaty i know some people did there was the progressive no vote you know and i obviously respect that but the vast majority of people chose to vote no because they didn't feel that there should be a voice um, from first nations people and as you say if they were reacting to the fact that it's some kind of conspiracy to distract us then if you really really are that troubled by the system and and we should be troubled by the system there's a lot we we need to tackle and there is a lot of distraction but as you say you choose you punch, your battles choose your better. battles you punch you punch, uh, you punch up you punch up you don't punch down and as i i say to people you know there is already um a voice to canberra in the context that there's a the business lobby and the property council and the business council and news limited and news so. limited the ones who pay for the, the expensive luncheons to have one-on-one access to politicians, the people who pay corporate donations. Frat seats fr- at the yeah. Jobs and Skills Summit. Yeah, exactly. There was no referendum about that. No. And that's the voice that we need to be actually saying, well, this is a non-democratic voice servicing particular vested interests. And yet the whole conversation was all about preventing a social injustice from being righted. It's really potent as well with the horrors that are going on in the Middle East. Um, and we had an opportunity in Australia to show the world that we can start to put injustices to right democratically and peacefully. And, and we, we didn't, and I think that's very sad. But as I say, the silver lining is, is that hopefully better things will, will emerge. We, we need to do a lot of soul-searching. For sure. And in the meantime, you know, uh, I'm personally reeling from
0: the results of the referendum and in a week away is the Albany elections. And we've both been putting a lot of work into trying to get environmentalists and progressives onto the council. But, yeah. it, but again, it's just another result that I'm bracing for, for. In my more cynical moments, I describe it as, humans banding together to do the wrong thing and then complaining bitterly about it
1: afterwards. Yeah, it's just um, an extension of the the grief process that's an ongoing grief process as the climate and ecological emergency intensifies. Tragedy for me, I think, is is that it's become increasingly obvious that as things get worse, um, the denialism and the conspiracy theories and the cognitive dissonance will increase Rather than there being a great awakening, and this is why, eco psychology and behaviour change and re-establishing our relationship with each other as humans and the Earth has to underpin all of our activism, um, and f- you know obviously indigenous peoples and First Nations culture that's been foundational to their approach. So this is another thing about The Voice. It was an opportunity for us to start, albeit very slowly, to the process of decolonising our culture. And decolonisation is fundamental to tackling the climate and ecological emergency because the climate and ecological emergency is a, It's a symptom of long-term colonial thinking and colonialism eventually kills the colonizers as well it will eventually kill everyone and that's going to become increasingly obvious to everyone over the next few years as we tackle unprecedented weather and um, extreme events
0: now much of what we do we do in the face of probable failure yeah to change the system fundamentally and the referendum and probably the albany council would just be two more examples but our next guest john doust i think said it perfectly when he said um his whole life he's used to failing Mm.
1: but he just gets up and
0: keeps doing it yeah. And, and getting
1: on with it. Yeah. It's better to go through life trying to do the right thing and failing than to succeed at doing the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: succeed at... <laughs> but, and as, as John said, he's so used to yeah. um, failing that yeah. it just becomes another day. Yeah. Um, yeah and and I right. really resonated yeah, me with it. Yeah, I've,
1: I've stopped being attached to outcomes now. I'm just, I'm attached to the process and trying to get the best outcome. But the joy is in the process of, of trying to do the right thing and um, accepting the grief that will come from <laughs> <laughs> mostly not succeeding. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that's how we manage to continue to be activists and that's how we are going to have to continue find ways psychologically of continuing to be activists in face of increasing... Um, bleakness um and the way we keep going is to have a kind of a um an acceptance of not always succeeding but if we go down we go down at least trying you know and that to me is the most powerful thing yes we've got a different set of kpis
0: than your normal (laughs) business operations yeah
1: yeah our shares wouldn't do well (laughs) so a
0: little bit more about our um guest john douse john douse uh, lives with us in Menang Noongar country. He was born in Bridgetown to a family that strongly encouraged learning the uh, local Noongar language which is fantastic. He has been a stand-up comedian and an environmental act- activist and also a First Nations and Noongar activist. John and I worked together on the Yes campaign um, booths. And uh, I also recognised him he's standing up for Albany Council elections. Oh, he's also very active with Yakimaia um, Forest, where I um, participated in a Meet the Candidates Q&A, and I recognised him. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, John, but this is, might be a weird question, but did you ever present to Christchurch Grammar School in the 90s? And he said, yes, he did. I said, I remember your talk. I don't remember many of them, but you managed to get a whole school worth of apathetic, entitled 90s teens to all laugh laughing stitches by the end of your talk. And I remember that, and I th- as I said, I have to interview That's you. quite an achievement. <laughs> I know. That's pretty
1: pretty awesome.
0: And we went in, you know, and the comedian was it. none of us are going to laugh through
1: this, no. and, and we did. And, yeah, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that, yeah, that in itself deserves recognition.
0: So John um, is an amazing storyteller. I've just bought Boy on the Wire, um, his experiences in boarding school at CCGS, Christchurch. Oh um a fictional book but based on his personal experiences. Yeah, the interview is just amazing storytelling from John um with his with his wit. That mm. reminds me quite a bit of Rod Quantock. Yeah. Um, with that political themes um kind of wit. Um, and I thought after that we might be back to talk a little bit more on the educational experience, as how it badly predisposes you to a life of degrowth activism. Sounds good. See you soon, Mark. See you soon. <laughs>
2: Douse, welcome yes. to PGAP. Gap. How are you? Um, you know what? I'm I'm ragged. I think that's a common word I use. <laughs> ragged.
0: I think you described when before the interview that we're in the middle of
2: a war here. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. And it's not surprising. I mean, anybody who spent any time in the Middle East, who follows the politics of the Middle East in particular, that bit of the Middle East that israel lebanon syria jordan e- egypt west bank gaza strip area you know it's not it's to be expected it's but it's horrible and of course i lived there for three years and one of the kibbutzim that i lived in i lived on two was attacked and two people have been killed and I called them immediately, I heard of course, but they were still in the middle of the lockdown and they couldn't talk to me and so, uh, you know, I'm still worried, but it's all stunning and startling. But not surprising, not at all surprising. And of course, the, the, the horror is that both sides have friends on either side and some of those friends will be killed by their own friends. That, that's the madness of war, that's what happens. And for these interests of posterity,
0: we're recording on the eve of the yes/no vote outcome. Um, being a podcast of degrowth, we're yes. very used here about things not going our ways. So,
2: oh yes, you, well, you know, yeah. there's. A I'm so suited <laughs> because I'm so used to losing. <laughs> You're right at home. <laughs> I'm such so a loser. Yeah, but you know, I've I made a decision. I made it out loud to myself but i probably knew it was a logical decision and, and it didn't need to be voiced but i voiced it anyway and that is that because i've been i've been uh, working on projects with noongas in particular for the vast bulk of my adult life i've worked on projects and engaged in in performance with with noongas in fact i wrote it a kids book with another guy called Ken Spillman and and the lead character was a, was an ungar kid but there were no protocols involved at the time just out of respect i sent it to an old friend of mine richard wally who a lot of people will have heard of and I said richard you know can you run your eyes over this and give us some advice and tell us and blah 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 i would not think of doing it in any other way and so i've decided that if if the worst occurs i will double my commitment and my efforts for projects with with my brothers and sisters in the in particular in the Nungau community because this is this is my budja. I really really respect the dedication there. So
0: um, for those uh, listening in now who have, may not have heard of you before, including myself, <laughs> right please go ahead. Tell us a little about yourself, your passions, and some of your life highlights.
2: Jeez, in a geez, minute geez. or less. So. A minute, a minute, a minute. Okay, so... <laughs> One word or less. <laughs> I, so I was born in uh, in Jugalap. That's the place of the Bil- Jugi, which eventually became known as Bridgetown, why? Because a ship called Bridgetown pulled into Bunbury to pick up some wool. (laughs) Oh yeah, Bridgetown's a big wool growing area, makes sense, call it Bridgetown. Ridiculous. Already the name Jugalup had entrenched itself, was referred to as known as, and the colonials could not abide, so they had to change it. My grandfather was a Noongar speaking man, best mates Nookum and Yuppie from the Jugalup people. I grew up in this little place, as luck would have it, no, no mission, no reserve. So we had a different, we had a different cultural upbringing. Um, and I still, when I see my old Noongar fella buddy Ernie from my primary school years, uh, we just hug in the street like a couple of old brothers. He was the most generous boy in the, in the school. So that's that's the beginnings. And then, of course, my parents sent us off to boarding school and things I already was a little trouble because I, I grew up on a farm uh, with 30 acres of orchards and I grew up with heavy metal poisoning. That's mercury and lead. And of course, in those days, we sprayed the orchard with everything. DDT, dieldrin, malathion, 245T, an element, major element in, in Agent Orange as we know, defoliated Vietnam. So it's no wonder a little bit out on the limb. <laughs> Welcome
0: to the pristine Australian you. countryside. I'll say.
2: <laughs> so, you know, things went from not really good to really shit mm. in no time at all. And, of course, you know the school I went to, and I was a boarder there, Christchurch Grammar School, boarder. I was an intense Christian. In fact, to be fair, I had two superheroes, uh, Jesus and the Phantom. Mm. Uh, one forgave and one smacking in the jaw. My... <laughs> both of those living inside me and they kind of helped me get through. But then after uh, after school, you know, I just fell in a heap basically until I got myself together, lived on kibbutz in Israel for three years, travelled a lot, uh, got myself together. started. You know what? It's so important to find your own people, people like you, people who, who hold the same things dear. And so my life really changed because I spent a year in Papua New Guinea. There was, along the way, there are seeds planted. So there were seeds planted in in, uh, in Jugalap. There were seeds planted in boarding school. There were seeds planted in, in Papua New Guinea. And then a lot of those seeds started to really grow strong in my, t- when I was in Israel in those three years. Uh, came back home, did a BA English, and uh, and then got a job as a journalist, which was a nightmare then. Even in a, in, its, in good years for journalists. Now, of course, it's, it's even a, before Murdoch owned everything. To to undying disgrace, I worked for Murdoch for for three years. That's okay. We can let that. And slip. I met him once. <laughs> and I remember looking at his eyes and thinking, "Yeah, <laughs> I don't like you." You met the devil. I met him. Mm. I saw him. But I was in the foundation group for the Wilderness Society in, in WA in nineteen eighty three. Campaign against uh, logging in native forests, uh campaign for against racism, all those sorts of left wing, you know Communist, rat baggy, homosexual, fringe dwelling, groupie things. I was in all of them. Institute of Public Affairs. Institu- <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Property Council
0: of Australia. Council you know,
2: fully paid up. Remember? <laughs> so I was a very angry agitator, and then you know you have a kid, and and I took my son to a couple of rallies, and they really disturbed him. I stopped going to rallies. I didn't start going to rallies again until much later when music was involved. And even now, if there's a rally without music, I'm I'm, I'm not too happy. I want music at a rally. I want drums primarily. I want to dance through the street. So I'm standing at the polling booth, pre-polling, for the, for the referendum. Uh-uh. <laughs> Somebody said to me, you're not the usual you know, pole person. I said, no, I'm an old-fashioned street performer. And, of course, I did a lot of... Because eventually I finished up getting a kind of a career, almost a career, a hint of a career in stand-up comedy and street performance. So, you know, I know how to work a street. Uh, Mainly it helps the other people on the yes side because it's it's really intimidating. Some Mm -hmm. ugly people come by and say ugly things to them. I really feel my primary task there is not to convince... No voters because they're doomed. <laughs> and I, yeah. And, but to in, to enlighten and enliven the rest of us. Yeah.
0: Now, John, I might just bring up how we've met. <laughs> um, we met at uh, Friends of Yakima mm. Bushwalk, um, hosted by the amazing Uncle Larry.
2: God, I think he's certifiable. <laughs> in a lovely way yeah He, Larry you know living here in Albany now and given the amount of just misery in the world I don't think I'm quite convinced of this I don't think I could survive with the even keel that I have without my Menang Nongar friends mm. and Larry is in the mix because they all have horrible stories, and they they still manage their humour, they still manage their equilibrium, and it's it's a major part of my sustainability. We very much hope to have Uncle Larry soon on the future episode of PGAP. Because I've spent a lot of time with Larry, and sometimes you'll be talking about something, you know, and then suddenly out of this mind comes this this flurry of information and knowledge. In it. He never ceases to stun me. So a week
0: later I think I met you at a counsellor um
2: forum. Oh Mumbai. yes what an exciting the environmental
0: forum. <laughs> what a- Kind of well, it's, it's good to know I had options <laughs> to vote for the I, Albany Council, and having been to the Albany meeting and oh, yeah. having a, a sea of Etonians who wanted
2: to, you know, overdevelop
0: anything. Etonians? I don't know. That's, that's, that's a how frightening I felt. thing.
2: The Eton thing is frightening. There's so many English prime ministers eaten graduates yeah it's just insane but that's you, the metaphor is 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 apt oh thank you it so <laughs> i thought apt. i was grasping at straws no <laughs> no no it is so apt these people are they're graduates of of i don't know rotary clubs chamber of i don't know what they are yeah but they're the same the same ilk i saw you at the forum because you're
0: standing for council mm. and i took a punt you took <laughs> I, a punt i said John, you never presented at Christchurch Grammar School back in the 90s, did you? And, you know, we had lots of guest speakers, but I remember two. <laughs> Who was the other one? Larry Blythe! No. I forget her name. I just remember some of the um, very outrageous oh, yeah. things that she said. Oh, what, what, uh,
2: was, what, was, what did she say? What about?
0: Do you remember? She seemed to be about male empowerment because she was saying um that men hold the seed to life um and it was it was a bit intense it's very, it's
2: very, if you don't know what I was saying it's very biological what was she a biologist what was who what was her attitude? do you remember her?
0: all I remember was that phrase wow and being okay. and even then thinking this is a bit intense for a yeah. Grown woman to be, yeah. <laughs> saying in front of a sea of teenagers. but I, I remember when you got up yeah. and you started speaking, and you're speaking to we were basically the worst of entitled blue triangle yeah. males yeah. with the worst of nineties apathy. Yeah, um, and we we're like, oh god, like yeah. a comedian came come up to talk to us. Whatever. <laughs> And I just remember by the end of it and yeah. you were swinging your arms oh, yeah. going, oh, no, how terrible. And we were all in stitches oh, by the end of yeah. it and you really lifted the mood. Yeah. Um, and I really remember the oh, no, how terrible. But, yeah, in 2009, your Boy on a Wire yeah. is based on Five years your boarding. experiences yeah. in boarding school. From my current perspective as an environmentalist and degrother, I reflect back on this privileged education with a high degree of amusement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for example, you know, school taught me neither the practical living skills of growing food, building houses or mending broken tools (laughs) or clothing. I mean, we had design and technology or music, but both of those were optional. They should (laughs) have, you know, the calculus should have been optional and the economics should have been, nor did it properly teach social skills such as critical thinking, empathy and conflict resolution required to navigate the realities of our unfurling world and nor the capacity to live communally or interdependently.
2: Oh. Do any of these observations resonate with your experiences? Oh, or? Well, of course, I was lucky because I was a farm boy from Jugala and so I, I knew a lot of things that you day boys wouldn't have known. And or, like, or day gays as a borders. Oh, called like, who yeah. you day gays. Yeah, we called them day bugs, <laughs> they were like insects, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we knew stuff. I was very good with, with farm implements that required rhythm, like an axe, a hoe, a shovel, a spade, a mattock, all those sorts of things. I was no good at fixing anything. So the traditional response in the orchard, for example. Was if if a tractor broke down, the other brothers would just get off and look through the engine and fix it up. I'd get off and fall under a tree, <laughs> and, and and sleep under a tree. I mean, yeah, yeah. When I got there, I um I uh, I was a very very strong believer in those those words of Jesus about the poor, the disenfranchised, and the alienated. So I had a very strong sense of social justice, and so I in my first three years I would have had a fight at least once a week and generally my fights were about protecting some poor weak bugger. Uh, I I can only ever remember one fight when it was just about me and the other guy but on all other occasions about me saying no 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 don't fight him he's weak and, and pathetic fight me you big lump and I only ever fought boys bigger than me. I fought all the biggest bullies in the school and of course I got beaten up plenty of times but my attitude always was you know you cannot beat a guy twice your size who's twice your strength but what you can do is you can hurt him and make sure that he never comes to you again because he knows it's too hard yeah yeah that's the, that was the thing so, well, well done for punching upwards <laughs> oh yeah I always punch <laughs> up, upwards. up the food chain up the f- <laughs> I just the whole privilege thing oh it was a nightmare and of course, it's it's the old Eaton thing again. And we all come out of there, and I, I don't know how many boys in your year, but somewhere in the vicinity of forty percent of the boys of the boys in my year finished up in real estate. Mm. For God's sake, nothing's have not, changed. <laughs> have you got a vision? Have you got mm. some concept of the planet or the world? But in my uh, estimation, our champion boy was a fellow who studied medical science, went to London, became a world-renowned lung expert, worked at the Lung Institute in London, came back to Perth to set up the Lung Institute at Sir John's Gardner Complex. But you know how many other boys I will mention this to and who will agree with me? <laughs> Not a lot. Zero? <laughs> no, a couple. It's a couple. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but in the memories of my... Oh, yeah, I remember him, yeah. Oh, for goodness sake. So when we had our 50th reunion, they, they the, the boys who were organising the reunion, rang me and asked me if I would MC it. I said, really? Because I, I, I was a loser in school. I finished up at the bottom of the heap. I failed everything at the end in my final year except for history because I loved history and I loved writing. That was it. Everything else I failed. I was a, I was a loser, a total loser. I said, why are you calling me? I'm the loser guy. Remember that? The other thing I was blessed with, of course, which may be obvious, was an overactive sense of humour. <laughs> 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 why are you calling That's... me? I said, well, you know about the... Because normally at those sorts of events, the MC is either the captain of school or the vice captain. Mm. Well, vice cap- uh, captain of school, buggered, lost, alcoholic, right. totally stuffed. Uh, vice captain, same, stuffed. So... They can't get the two captains, so they go to the biggest loser. I, I said to them on the phone, remember, was, okay, I will MC, but on one condition. What's that, John? That I have complete and up, out of control over the proceedings. Oh, okay, then. I said. No. I said, right. Did they
0: know what they were getting themselves into? They didn't know,
2: <laughs> but they got it because I didn't want to go to a luncheon and listen to... Uh, old men brag about sexual conquests and so on. I could not abide such a gathering because I've been to such gatherings before. Mm. So I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to have stories. That's it. And I will determine who tells the story and when they tell the story and so on. So the champion couldn't be there. So what I did was I recorded an interview with him. I put it on YouTube. I sent it out to all... The, uh, the guys who were going to be there. I said, this is, here's Geoffrey talking, and this is what we're going to do. And I will tell you who's talking and who's not talking. When I got there, some bloke says to me, he comes up he says, John, can I tell a story? I said, is it a true story about school? He said, yeah, yeah, of course it's a true story. I said, are you sure it's a true story? He said, yes, it's a true I said, all right, then. What did he do? He got up and told a story about him and his mates on a golf course playing golf with a priest and you can imagine the end, the priest. And the, it's, it was an old joke. And mm. all he'd done was put his mates in it. And I said, right, that's it. Nobody else is talking apart from those I've set up beforehand. So we were there at the Indiana in Cottesloe for four hours. Mm. At the end of it, about 15 of them went across to the Cottesloe Hotel. Mm. I, clearing up because I'm a country boy, so he helped tidy up, mm. I go over there and I walk into a room of older men, Telling what kind of stories. I don't suppose the sexual prowess ones. They were a very important part of the proceedings. <laughs> well, it sounds like you delayed the inevitable. And, <laughs> of course, the other thing is about, you know, money and property and so
0: on. Of course, yes. Yeah. Normally said in the same sentence. It's, yeah, it's all yeah. part
2: because because they all mix in. Yeah. Moment, yes. Mm. <laughs> The secret to life or
0: surviving the apocalypse probably isn't going into oh, real no. estate and um, no. bragging about your sexual prowess, no. you know, it's, a, no, it's building no. those community yes. skills and yes. empathy yes. with each other and kindness, and, caring for each other, but being active in, in your community. I can just remember during the years of CCGS, like, um wide-eyed youths and over the course of their schooling gradually that sneer sneer. emerging until um by the time you know you're leaving school they're those uh sneering liberal voters like everyone else in the blue triangle there's been a lot of
2: that outside the polling booth i can only i can only imagine so a quick story about the polling booth go for gold I'm there this morning and this old guy wanders up to me. You can see he's got the farmer's gate. He wanders mm. up and I said, are you all right, mate? Is everything all right? He said, yeah, yeah, it's all right. all right. I don't want to talk to you guys. You... He said, I'm voting no. I said, great. He said, yeah, I'm a farmer. I'm a farmer. Of course I'm voting no. Yeah, And I said, mate. So I leaned in a little bit closer. I said, mate, you don't think I come from a long line of farmers? He said, oh, do you? Have they still got the property? I said, my brother's family family still have the property, yes. He said, well, oh, they'll be voting no. I said. Mate, my brother's dead. But if he was alive, he'd be voting yes. And then there was silence.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, what can you say to that? Why, why do you think I'm a farmer is just a justification for making wrong decision after wrong decision, no,
2: just, without even having to self evaluate? I sent a text to one of my old friend, Danny, and the and the kibbutz I was in in the north. Because his area is quite safe. But I had I talked to him on the on the phone about a month and a half ago and I said, How's it going? He's a diehard socialist, he's of the extreme left. He said, John, he said three thousand years of Jewish history never do we cease to make the wrong decision. Well that's, that's a story
0: of humanity, oh really, is it? Well
2: absolutely, and that's that's one of the reasons why those old Friends of mine from 50 years ago still also help sustain me because mm. they, they have their sense of humor. They have, their, they have their sense of humor which is imbued with wisdom, with historical reference, with historical knowledge, with that, that sense of the long, sad march of humanity.
0: Now, speaking of sense of humour and laced with sadness, um, another common bond we both share is we've both interacted with various capacities with um, Rod Quantock. Ah. For myself, I did a YouTube series with him called Tough Crowd. One of the things that came out in that interview was not only his political views and views on the world, which basically um, could be described generously as quite doomer, but also his struggles with talking about taboo issues. Now, you'd think in the realm of stand-up comedy, well, nothing is taboo, but the reality is we live in a society is that if you talk about things like degrowth for questioning the Economic system or other taboo issues such as um, population, etc., etc., who shut off from taking part in mainstream society. So, for Rod, it was um, not going down the same path as many of his contemporaries who became more famous. And I was just wondering, is uh, someone who has been in comedy yourself, is that a perspective that you
2: also share or, or part of your life experience? Oh, I feel a fairly sense of doom. Absolutely. No question about that. I, I live with a constant underbelly of despair. Yeah. But of great benefit to me was growing up in a small town, realizing that really you have to get along with as many people as possible so i have that kind of in my family we table manners respect for elderly women and so on was was very very heavy we stood up when a woman walked into a room i'm of that generation we had to hold our knives and forks properly and appropriately we set grace before meal and so on so well, of course, I rebelled against all. That. <laughs> I rebelled against all of that, but I'm grateful for the for the beginning of it because it taught me restraint mm. and it taught me about the importance of respect. So while I'm standing outside the polling booth, I'm thinking constantly. I'm maintaining my awareness of my need to be respectful to all people, whichever way they vote. And because, of course, when when the votes are all counted and it looks more than likely like it'll be an overwhelming no, then I need to have I, I will need to refer, deal with these people after. But I will speak to them honestly and clearly when, mm. as I did with the old farmer. I will not mm. hold back. The blessing that I have, Rod's lived most of his life in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I've lived in lots of different places. I've been to Iran a couple of times, I lived in Israel for three years, I lived in South Africa for about nine months, I lived in UK for uh, about six months, I sp- I've spent time in North America and Japan and all this has given me a, a, a I don't know, a broadness and because of my innate psychological makeup. I've always attempted to try and connect with everybody. So the gold farmer guy says farming, I can connect with him. If he'd said accountancy, I could have connected with him. If he said neurosurgery, I could have connected with him. I always attempt to find a way to connect with somebody, in particular somebody I want to influence. And of course, I've got that, I've got that, that innate ability to, to chat, to converse with almost anybody. And I'm good with crazy people. There are some crazy people in this town who run to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I watched one of those episodes with Rod and it made me feel intense sadness. And, and I f- feel somehow I'm better, I'm better prepared for that, for that carrying, the thing that he carries. I feel that I have a skill set that en- enables me to carry it better so you know i'm wearing a noongar budget t-shirt for example mm. so every day i go to the polling booth i try to wear something different to to enliven my own life mm. and the, you know what when i'm at the pilot also i'm intensely aware of the others who are holding out who are handing out yes brochures because they're copping a lot of crap mm. and they're going to cop more crap than me because the people on the other side can see the way i behave in the street and they're i would have to say given they haven't approached me yet given i've been there for over a week now they don't come to me with their madness so i feel for the other yes people i want to i want to be there for them now in a previous episode
0: of pgap i had the enormous privilege of welcoming professor and polina uh, nikina warra traditional owner and chair of the matawara fitzroy river council One of the key takeaways from this interview was Anne's observation of the First Law, which embodies the rules for living in coexistence with nature. You are closely involved with the First Nations people, including the Manang people of the larger Noongar nation, um, first stewards of the land in which we currently record, and since colonial times has been known as Albany. Now, this is an open-ended question on your perspectives on how reconciliation with First Nations peoples is a necessary component of environmental activism, social activism, and even, indeed, transitioning to a post-growth future.
2: Have you got a simpler question? Anyway, so.
0: <laughs> how does living in coexistence with our First Nations brother and sister oh. stop
2: us from being fucked? <laughs> oh. Excellent. Excellent. That's yeah. just what I should have I'll said. Say. Yeah. Well, the older I get, the more I live in the presence of of my grandfather and Nukum and Yabi and Mokere and, and Nakanere and Mullet and Galliput and Manyat. No, the longer I live because, of course, if we'd listened in the beginning, if we'd listened, if we'd... Here's a classic example. This is... What's it called? Albany. What's that hill up there called? I forget, because I only use the Manang names now. That's Iria, Iria up, and that's Carter up. Uh, that's Carter up, and that's Kondiruk. Now, so Vancouver comes by here, and he goes, oh, shit, that's a nice little hill. I'll call that whatever he called it. Mm. Uh, instead of... Excuse me, Moke, that place up there with the, you know, what do you call that place? How easy is that? Mm. But no, 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 no. We discovered the mm. place. It had never been discovered before. And because we, we have a right thus to give it our name. And, you know, this is coming back to the CCGS experience. You know why they gave the names they gave? They gave the names often because a lot of these expeditions were privately funded. Yeah. Oh, way. yeah. And mm. so they gave the names of people they were sucking up to, mm. people who may well fund them in the future. Same with the French. Mm. They, they were the same, they were privately funded. So Mr. Clarence was funding. Clarence, no. <laughs> Clarence and his wife, Adelaide, mm. right? Clarence <laughs> became King, King George IV. Oh, really? He did. And Clarence, when he married Adelaide, he said, Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I've got some other kids. What do you mean you've got some other kids? Yeah, I've, I've been having a bit of a thing going on over here with I don't know how many people. He brought in 10 extra kids before he married Adelaide. Great example. Wonderful example. Let's hold him up. Look, it's, it's a disgrace, really. And that's why I love walking in the bush with Larry because he he just, his knowledge is innate. He's, and I, I don't ever go in the bush and come out without learning something new from Larry. And it's the way I have felt my entire life. My mother always used to say, you know, when the boys come home, you know, those boys will go and get on the tractor and whatever. But John is the only boy who goes up the back of the farm into the bush. What was I doing in the bush? I was, I was being in the bush. You've had a look at my my garden. My garden is a nightmare. My garden is a nightmare to many, but in here, everything lives in here all this, everything, there's food for slaters, there's food for slugs. Sadly, I can no longer kill things. (laughs) I have to provide them with an opportunity to survive. And so... Imagine saying that to the farmer. I I have been, in fact, enrolled in a cultural awareness uh, fire burning with Stephen Hopper and Lynette Knapp because I'm quite convinced the referendum's going to turn bad... And I start, there's tours starting with cruise ships coming back. And we say, why are you doing that? You know, it's polluting. I said, yes, yes, I know. Yes, I I agree with you. 100%. No, nightmare worse than a cruise ship. Can you imagine getting on a cruise ship with a bunch of baby boomers, all old, all fat and eating and eating and eating. (laughs) But, if they're going to get off the ship in Albany, I want them to know a different story. And I take that upon myself. And Larry, Larry and I both do it. And I, uh, and I've, They've asked me to do two buses for the first cruise, one after the other, and I said I'll do the second as long as I can do it in partnership with Larry Blight, because we kick well together. So, yes, uh, Michael, in answer to the question, if that's why a voice would be so strong. Hmm. How how are we living? Is this wrong in the way what should we? It's a simple questions, and of course. People like Larry Blythe are perfect to provide the answer, and Bernice Gillies, perfect to provide the answers, because, and Lynette Knapp, and, and Carol Pedersen, because what they understand, and this is what Bernice said at the march, or was it Carol? I forget. It was great to listen to all those hours in a row, that they understood the interconnectedness of everything in the world. And we who have come from other places and who have cousins and relatives in other places and friends in other places, we understand the interconnectedness of everything. But that old fellow I spoke to this morning, no. So many, too many people do not understand the interconnectedness of everything. They do Mm. not understand the... Putin connectedness to Erdogan and to Netanyahu and da 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 da. They don't understand that. They don't understand geopolitics. They don't understand local politics. You know how many people have come to me and said something about the local election not understanding the way it is? Mm. Every time there is an election, a federal election, a state election, I lose count of a number of times I have to explain the system to people. And if you understand how it works, it's like, a, I should have said to the farmers one, uh, you've got a tractor here. Yeah. When it breaks down, do you have to call in a mechanic? Oh, no, I just fix it myself, mate. So you understand how it works? Yeah. Well... Yeah, yeah, of course I'm not stupid. Oh, yeah, but you are stupid, aren't you? Because you don't understand how everything else works, do you?
0: Now, this is a podcast about post-growth.
2: What? Talk to me about growth. If only we could understand that growth is not infinite, isn't it? Oh, sorry. But, but I, I Hang thought on a you could keep growing infinitely.
0: We're in a podcast about economic rationalism, oh, here. My, you know.
2: So I'm glad you raised it because. A lot of my old lefty Como friends remember the heydays of, well, Gough Whitlam, of course, and then the heydays of Hawke and Keating. And I always, almost, I have to restrain the sneer because as I remind them, it was Hawke and Keating who introduced economic rationalism and I wasn't long out of the kibbutz and I was spitting chips. I was spitting. Then, back then, I was spitting. Oh, yes, they did some good things, but... Economic Rationalism, Puh, I spit again. Oh, sorry, one more time. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, neoliberalism became very fashionable in
0: the Anglosphere from about 1978 onwards and everyone was on the bandwagon and, you know, reflect my own life growing in safe little Perth in the 90s and it seems idyllic but things... Very quickly, you could see the decay with the legacy that Keating left and with Howard and creating an economy that revolved around housing speculation in which the end point seemed to be like, you know, you sell a granny flat out the back for a billion
2: dollars. <laughs> this know, is going to sound, sound really sad, but... We bought this house in in 2007, whatever, eight, and in a very short time it lost value, and I was pleased about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first time I've ever heard that from (laughs) another person. Thank God for that. Mm. You know, ah, yeah, what a nightmare. And of course, they both left and started working for Chinese companies corporations lobby groups whatever they were and our recent premier leaves and he's already working for for two mining companies and he's gone and worked with the next howard no yeah was it howard treasurer oh a but labor
0: group. are so good oh, they're don't. so yeah, left yeah,
2: yeah, um, yeah. they're not a left sp- they're bloody kill me no and look i was in jugalup with on my brother's farm and I was staying there and I went to a, a, a conference, a local histories conference, a historical society conference. There were, the first couple of speakers were wonderful. Um, Sandra Hill, a, a Noongar Manang Wadandi Pibbleman woman who just spoke beautifully. And then the second half of the morning proceedings, there were two speakers, one ex-manager of the lithium mine in Greenbushes, and then the Shire CEO. And both of them caused me to burn I had to get a fire extinguisher to put out my underclothing. I had to ask this. I couldn't ask the, the mine or anything because it, it was it, all he talked about was infrastructure, profits, mm. and uh, uh, jobs. You know, That's growth. Talked about growth, and then the show, you know, talked about much the same sort of thing. But he also mentioned. Yeah, Bridgetown, it's a lovely town, it's a quaint, it's a beautiful town, it's a tourism town, you know, when mm-hmm. they've got farming and such a lovely mix now with the mine. And so I said, uh, I'm sorry, but how do you manage all this? Because you've got tourism, it's, there's a lot of yellow vests around, You know, there's a mine that's growing, and you know, how do you... And I said, and you know what, my brother's farm is just over the hill from the mine." I'm woken up at three o'clock in the morning by the roar of the mine and they have knocks on the door every week. The mine is coming for his farm. How do you manage all this? And he said his answer, which was terrifying, I must say. You can't stop mining. We live in a mining state. That's blunt. I didn't say to him then because I didn't want to start because I'm polite and it's up, my hometown, and there's lots of polite people around. I didn't then say to him, "Great, I, you know, I can just see our grandson in about 20 years' time. He'll call a friend and say, hey, Tom, you got any food over there? No, nah, you haven't got, haven't got it. No, your phone, a phone's still working. You've got no, no, no food. You, can you eat lithium? By the no, you can't eat lithium. Oh." Yes, it's like that old um, saying, you know,
0: only when the last river has been drained will we find that we can no longer eat money. We could never eat money in the first place.
2: Oh, my <laughs> goodness me. Yeah, so, what a nightmare. So
0: what is your personal vision for a post-growth world um, and what might the day in the life in a degrowth Albany look well, like for you? you
2: know what? There are so many ways...
0: I assume it'll be slightly less SUVs
2: driving over, sir. Yes, you don't start me on the SUVs. Um, So, as you can see, my back... We'll go for a walk, in fact, after, and I'll just show you what I'm growing out there. But uh, in the beginning, because we're on a hill of clay, I started with the raised garden beds. But my objective was for everything to grow everywhere, and so it is now. It's growing everywhere. And as you can see that blossom out there, see that blossom? That's a Granny Smith mm-hmm. tree there. I've got five apple trees. When I was a boy, just about everybody had grew veggies in the backyard. So I'm, I've just written another book about apples. And I spoke to a guy who's a horticulturalist and I said to him, so how would you describe apple growers? And he said, there's two kinds of apple growers. There's growers and there's business people. And I said, how many apple growers are there in WA? And he said, two. I said, all the rest of, he said, they all the rest of business people right now because i know a lot of them what i do know is that some of the business people have got growers in them mm. and i said this one of my friends i said "Well, so what and he said oh that's that, those two are the two who agree with everything he says <laughs> which was fair comment and it's probably true but the point stays so for example when you look out there you will see the vegetable garden of a grower and i grow too much what do i do with the excess. Do I give it to friends? Do I give it to them? No bugger them. They've got, they can grow their own. They've got the faculties and they've got the the dosh. So I take it to food bank. Most weeks I take a box to food bank. So in the post-growth, yes, be much more efficient use of of the landscape. And I said this years ago, you know, if you're a long-term campaigner, you remember all the things you said 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I remember saying, all there should be a state law i mean ideally a federal law but this is where we live and as you know over here in the west we're not like the others <laughs> <laughs> there should at least be a state law and that state law should deem it illegal to grow any more than 2% in your in your garden that's not native so yeah. you go have a little small plot in your backyard you can grow a bloody rose bush or something the rest native, no, Bagarop, native. Thank you very much. So in my garden, the only plants you will see are those that have arranged to come, arrive themselves, and the only the only plantings are, are, are the food that you can eat, herbs you can eat, you can put with food you make, and natives.
0: That's exactly how I'm planning my garden. Do you want you some have, advice? I
2: so, uh, love some advice. Right, uh, we'll talk about that later. So in a, in a post growth, we would m- much more cluster, much more. You know, much more like kibbutz cluster mm. housing uh, my partner is from the netherlands cluster housing housing is big she's got an uncle for example who has alzheimer's what do they do they do they build a facility over there and isolate him no they build a community so her uncle lives in a facility inside a community and what does the community contain it contains contains normal people who don't have alzheimer's i wouldn't as normal as can be, a shop, a coffee shop. So he comes out of his place and he sees normal life. He's connected. What do we do? Oh, old people. We'll build this place. We'll put a big fence around it. We'll put them over there. Mm. For goodness' sake. Mm. Now, um, I'm not. I will not go into that facility. I won't go in there. I am very lucky in that I have, in my family, we've we've got a history of people leaving when they don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, when I don't want to be here anymore, and we don't have a lot of history of the mind decay like Alzheimer's and so mm. on, so I'm fairly confident I'll retain my faculty fairly close yeah, to, to make me the decision. And then I'll probably just I don't know what I'll do, but. I might just go for a swim because I am and probably you are roughly 75% water. So why bother getting buried in the dirt? when, And you know how long it takes? So you're 75% water, right? You get buried in the dirt and then you dwindle Mm. and that moisture from you falls down. How long does it take to get back in the bloody ocean? Mm. Probably 100 years just from here, from our place. Well, I haven't got the time for that. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you're looking at
0: the efficiency. I can't (laughs) believe I'm so
2: efficient about the day because the (laughs) life hasn't been anywhere near (laughs) as efficient.
0: Making up the lost time. Now, as we speak, you're running for Albany City Council. Mm. Um, Now, we're living in a part of the world where we seem to enjoy collectively voting for people like Rick Wilson and I don't know what he enjoys more the live export in industry, or voting no. Um, Either way, it just it just loves doing everything wrong. Despite this, at the council level, do you feel there's an any appetite in Albany for change towards something vaguely more environmental? And you know, <laughs> a week you may have said yes, and I suppose at the polling boost today, it's might not be the best day to
2: be asking this question. Look, you know, I don't know. A lot of people make predictions. I sense a shift, and I and I say to myself, "You sense a shift among the people you're talking to." That's it. I mean, we we get lulled into false senses. Being part of the a a long, because I don't know. Do you know how old I am? I think you mentioned the yeah, 70s. Mention? I'm 75. Yeah. So We can the... edit this out. Oh, okay. No, no, so... <laughs> so in that, First of all, I'm too old for council. That's the first thing. Uh, and we won't know if there's a shift until after the council elections. There's a small group of us nutcases. And if some of us get in, then we can... Be... And because now there's no wards and it's just a general vote, then if a couple of us get in, then we can safely say there's been a shift. Whether the ships last shift lasts or not, we don't know, because it's not long ago that we had, a, we had people in federal parliament like Tony Abbott. And not, I'm going to have to say this because nobody has said it yet in the media. Because in t- 2013, Abbott slashed two major bu- budgets. One was for Aboriginal affairs and the other was for quarantine. Guess what? We're in deep trouble in both areas. Is there a shift? There's a shift. But the sad thing about democracy is they get a shift over here then they go, oh, my God, that was horrible. I hated that. And then they shift back that way. Mm. That's the tragedy of democracy. We have to accept that. Here in, in this place, I, if, if a couple of us got up, that would be, that'd be wonderful. If hmm. I got up, I'm, it, I'm preparing myself for a nightmare, seriously. But you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the other thing, Michael. I know, I make it my business to know everybody on the list. I know all the mayoral candidates. I know all the councilor candidates. I know how I feel about each one of them. And I know some of them, if they don't get up or they don't get back in, they'll be devastated. Why? Because there's something else at play. There's an ego, there's a sense of status. I don't have any of that. I'm too old. I am such a loser. I'm so used to losing. If I lose, I'll be laughing. Just another day. (laughs) Just just another day and another lot. Mm. If I get in, I'll also be laughing with an undercurrent of anxiety. (laughs) What would I do that for? What am I going to do now? Yeah. But because I'm agile and because I've been able to respond to crises in my past, (laughs) I will cope. Well, thank you, John. I wish you all the best
0: for the... uh, I personally wish you all the best for the elections. Thank you. And if listeners would like to follow your work, uh, where can they go and how can they say hello, assuming
2: you want to say hi? I see. Well, look, uh, uh, sadly, I have a number of social media sites and I used to be on the twit face, but I got got so angry with that nutcase that bought it, I left. Mm. And I'm now on that new one, Threads. Mm. And it seems to me to be much more reasonable so far, but of course in the end, it'll probably finish up in the in the nut bin. I'm easy to find on, on social media. Uh, I wrote three books based on my first 38 years. First book is, is uh, based on my five years in boarding school. This is how you set up a boy to become a man. Mm. Second book is set based on my year in Papua New Guinea. If this is how you set him up, this is a distinct possibility. And in in this book, the guy has a the lead character has a mental breakdown, and because it's fiction, you know, I, I had a mental breakdown, but I didn't have my mental breakdown until I got home. But this guy has his mental breakdown, and it's an anti-colonial book because mm. colonialism sucks. I got on a rant in the privacy of my car this morning, listening to a, to uh, Erdogan saying, "You know, it's time the Palestinians." I'm thinking, mate, have you looked? What about the Kurds, mate? They want there to be a Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. And you and and uh, I don't know what Putin said. What about the Chechnyans? What about the Dagestanis? What about what about the Ossetians? What about what about and then who else was going on? Um, all these people going uh, China I can't remember what what, what, China, what about the ne- Nepalese? What about the Uyghurs? All these colonial empires that still exist and they're not what the, what's England doing in, what what are they doing in Bermuda? What mm. are we doing on Cocos Island? What ride have we on Christmas Island? I mean, it goes on and on and on mm. forever. But that's the problem with having a big picture head. You just keep extrapolating forever. <laughs>
0: how far can you go in an infinite universe? Exactly.
2: <laughs> Here's how you set the boy up. Mm. This is what's going to happen. And the third book is based on my three years in Israel on kibbutz. It's called Return Ticket. And that's... In the first, when I wrote the first two books, I was in therapy. I needed therapeutic help because I got really, I got knocked about. I knocked myself about a bit in the writing. People say, "Oh, has it been therapy? Has it been a cathartic?" No. <laughs> fucking way. No cathartism at all. What's cathartic is it's all done and now I'm talking about it openly because now everybody knows my story or mm. at least they think they know their story so you can't go to him down there and say, do you know about John? Did you know that he... And they go, no, it's in his book, everybody knows that so nobody, it's very hard for people to bag me. Do you... He used to smoke of course he smoked marijuana, it's in the book mm. and so Return Ticket is about how this damaged, wounded boy Becomes a man and sorts himself out and comes to terms with and finds his own people, Michael. Mm. You know how important it is to find your own people. People who find their own people when they're young, oh, my God, what a joy. But maybe it's a bit easy. I feel, part of me <laughs> feels feels sad that it took me so long to find my own people. Mm. But it's but it's wonderful because I've got three books out of it. <laughs> and it's, yeah. <laughs> well you know there's a saving grace <laughs> my immense sadness is always for those people who don't have an art form because mm. i know really sad people people who struggle people who battle I met a bloke at the polling booth this morning we he wore the aboriginal flag into the polling booth oh man that was so wonderful we hugged and uh and and, and this is a guy who's had his struggles and and uh uh, it's just so great to see you know, people who, who you know some bits of the story of and you identify with very strongly. Uh, it's a wonderful, joyous moment to see them, and to see them joyous because it's not easy being joyous. It's not easy. Oh my god, I'm exhausted now. i have got to get back to the booth. <laughs> for a bit of peace and quiet.
0: <laughs> well well, thankfully we're at the end then, John. So well not thankfully, I'm I'm sad. I'm sure the listeners are to see you go, but it's a uh, health and safety that we Slash have the it. interview Cut here. It the <laughs> thank you so much okay, for your time. Thank you, Michael, it's a pleasure. <laughs> to PGAP. I'm your co-host, Michael Bayliss. And I'm your other co-host, Mark Allen. And uh, I just spoke to our very esteemed guest, John Dowse. It was an amazing interview and an amazing conversation. I just thought that we'd touch on a little bit about, especially since John and I went to the same uh, private school of... um, how the education system does not predispose one well to being a wise person that can do Wise things in the face of
1: multiple existential crises. Well, if you'd have gone to a public school, Michael, you would have found that they do all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go to a public school, but... Um... We come out as little Buddhas <laughs> just sort of hovering above the ground in a state of meditation. Oh, is that what happens? Yeah. Mm. For um, any UK listeners, public school uh, being a uh, state school. Yes. yes. State schools, yes. Yes, we got it round the wrong way here in uh, <laughs> some members. Oh, Sphere. yes. Yeah. No, I think they got it around the wrong way, and I don't know who's right, right and wrong. It's we're all all wrong. wrong. We're all wrong, we're all wrong. We've
0: talked about with each other, um, about how ridiculous our education upbringings were. Um, do you have any reflections on your education experience and what it should have been instead?
1: I'll ask my psychologist to talk on my behalf. No, um, <laughs> I've heard that it's got better. Um, A little bit better. When I was at school there was very little to set us up for critical thinking. There was very little philosophy and so I kind of entered into the world uh, really finding it very difficult to navigate um, a lot of personal issues and a lot of how to navigate other humans and how to to navigate the world in, in general. Um When I was at school, there was um, very little understanding of neurodiversity, there was little understanding about equity. A healthy, critical outlook towards life is something that I think should be embedded into all education. And to me that that was severely lacking and also the understanding that we are part of nature it would have been really nice to have looked at other philosophers as well as christianity so that we can understand different ways of looking at the world including first nations ways of looking at the world where we actually see humans as being integral to nature and not above it it's almost insidious (laughs) when i look back on my education
0: and i know there are a lot of teachers um trying their best and in you know a broken system even in the 90s and hats off to them but it's just been an almost exhausting process just being a kid from blue ribbon western suburbs of Perth where you're basically trained to either be good at sport or the next generation of real estate Mm. agents or Mm. or doctors or whatever. In a microcosm environment, which is built around not addressing your vulnerabilities, but projecting that out onto your classmates Mm. and learning how to um, punch downwards yeah basically you're
1: born into all of this material privilege but Mm. you're born into very low emotional privilege Mm. and you're not born into the privilege of learning critical thinking and to understand how to use that privilege that you're born into to actually make the world a better place
0: it was a tragedy to see over the five years of high school seeing all my fellow boys going in as kind of white-eyed cherubs and out the other end as, like, sneering liberal voters with that definite Western Suburbs. Yeah. Uh, entitled sneer on... Like, even just learning practical stuff, like learning how to garden mm. and learning how to do bush carpentry, yeah, and I yeah. know there was design and technology, but it was an optional thing, mm-hmm. whereas the calculus and the neoliberal economics and the 19th century English literature wasn't optional. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these practical or, or spirit- spiritually nurturing things like music and art were seen as less important than making the top 12 in the football team it's a bit of an inversion and I do I try not have resentment but it's also a bit exhausting that in the years since of my schooling having to completely unlearn myself and my wiring and my understanding of the world and build up a new interconnection and new human psyche that can interact with the world from a degrowth perspective, um, and that has been an utterly
1: exhausting process. Mm. And from an e- um, an ecotistical perspective, yeah. rather than an egotistical one, which 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 for me has to underpin degrowth.
0: Definitely, yeah. definitely.
1: If only they had um, showed one Alan Watts video during oh. their high schooling. Oh, you know,
0: even that would have been something.
1: Yeah, imagine that. You <laughs> know, this is an attack on teachers, by the way. Uh, teachers work incredibly hard. They're incredibly stressed. They have to work with the curriculum, and I know that many teachers do the very best they can. With just really looking at the the system, in the same way that you know, as a ex planner myself, I don't want to attack planners when I talk about planning, because planners are often, uh, you know, they go to university, they, they learn for, you know, four mm. years. They do four years of learning. They learn lots of amazing things, certainly um, in, in Victoria and South Australia, they do, um, about sustainable planning. And they go into the profession and they kind of have to leave 99% of that behind. And they don't want to, but they, they have to because it's their job. And they're under pressure, so much pressure. Um, so in the same way that I don't like to attack planners as a profession or teachers but it is the it is the interests that lie behind it and it's the, the interests that drive the legislation and the approach that they have to take, that they're forced to take and it is it is those people, the people who are sort of behind the closed doors, the legislators and of course the people who influence them? Which again goes back to the business council, the property council, and and all of the other corporate lobbies, you know, who are all invested in growth at all costs, irrespective of whether or not
0: there's a planet. Which just rots all the social systems, despite the best efforts of individuals to work within it. So, again, let's not arrive at false dichotomies. We're not knocking the teachers. No, no. Um, we're knocking the system that makes things impossible for well-meaning people, well-meaning individuals to do the right thing. Thank you once again, John Dowse, that took me down memory lane. What a great conversation that was. That was just brilliant. Did you like the episode, though, dear listener? Um, If you did, or even if you didn't, um, contact us on the contact form or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends, family, networks, even
1: your arch enemies.
0: And we'll be back with um, more esteemed
1: guests. We will, we will. They just keep coming. We must be doing something right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In a few weeks, um, one or both of us will be at the New Economy Network Australia um, conference, behind the scenes interviews
1: with um, all the degrowth game changers. The New Economy Network Australia is brilliant. They're part of the solution. They We do everything are. we can to support them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And looking forward to being there live. Um, but until next episode, Mark. Until then.